invite you to take your Bibles, if you have them with you, and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, if you've been with us through the series, we've been walking through the book of uh, Hebrews in a series entitled Jesus is Greater Than. And the reason we titled the series that way is because that's the whole theme of the book of Hebrews. He say, hey, listen, no matter what uh, is offered to you between a covenant between God and man, Jesus is always superior uh, in that covenant. And so, so we've been walking through that for the last, it's the 11th week this week, and we're heading down the home stretch now. Here's something else you've probably discovered as we walk through the book of Hebrews. It is a difficult book to understand at times, is it not? I remember we got into about the third message in this series in the second chapter, and I remember sitting in the staff meeting, and I don't know whose idea this was, this was a dumb idea, all right? It is a tough book, and the reason that it's tough is because it's a New Testament book that is honestly referring to a lot of Old Testament theology, covenants, themes, all those kinds of things. So it can be a confusing book, uh, no doubt, to study. But here's what's really simple in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews has two sections. And the first section is in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to chapter 10, verse 18. And then basically what he's saying in that whole section is this, is that Jesus is greater than anything else. He's a greater prophet. He's a greater priest. He's a better covenant. He's a better tabernacle with men. He's all, anything you can think of between God and man, Jesus is greater than. And that section ends in chapter 10, verse 18. And the second section begins in chapter 10, verse 19. So the book of Hebrews breaks cleanly there. And the second section, basically the theme is this. As a result of that truth that Jesus is greater than anything else, no matter what comes your way, He is worth persevering for. That's the second section in chapter 10, verse 19, all the way through the end of the book. He is worth moving forward for, which is the title of the message this morning. So we're going to start on the final section here in the home stretch here in the book of Hebrews. Now, if you're a little OCD and you're like, hey, hey, you skipped chapter 9. We did. Uh, but chapter 9 is basically a recap of some of the things he taught about Jesus being a better priest and a better sacrifice all through chapter 1 through 8. So we're going to start in the last section of the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, uh, verse 19 this morning. Now, here's the reality. My guess is this week, uh, many of you ate too much. Uh, many of you, uh, but also I hope, paused and had time to reflect on all the wonderful things that God has provided. Uh, all the wonderful things that, that you have to be thankful for. And one of the things that we're thankful for here in our country is the incredible freedoms that we have, the freedom to assemble this morning, the freedom to lift up and speak the name of Jesus. But that is not a universal freedom all over the world. As a matter of fact, um, there is a watchdog group that watches Christian persecution globally, and it's called Open Doors. And uh, at the beginning of this year, in January, they released a report reflecting back on uh, 2016. And here's what the report said. In 2016, it was the greatest year of Christian persecution globally in the entire history of the world. Now, we don't understand that here. Uh, we, we read about that. We hear about that. We pray for the persecuted church. But globally, last year, 2016, was the most persecuted year for Christians in the history of uh, civilization. And so, now the reality is this. Most of us have never experienced that type of persecution. Most of us have never experienced the persecution that they were here in the book of Hebrews. Uh, they, they started living for Christ publicly, and as a result of that, a guy who reigned by the name of Nero began to crucify Christians, began to torture them. And so for the, for the most of us in the room, we don't understand that level of persecution. But here's what I've learned, both walking with Christ and in pastoring with people. What I've learned is this, is that almost every single person in the room this morning has walked through a season of feeling like giving up. 
It may be a trial that you have no explanation for. It may be one that is painful and it is prolonged. It may be a season where you've experienced intellectual doubt and emotional discouragement. You may have walked through a season where you had your heart ripped out and stomped to pieces by a person who professed to be a Christian. It may be that you were sinned against in deep and life-altering ways and those wounds came from people and from places that were supposed to be safe because they named the name of Jesus. You may have walked through or be walking through an extended and painful trial that seems to grow worse even though your prayers have grown louder and more desperate. And you may have never gotten to the place where you felt like just denouncing your faith altogether, but you've probably struggled with staying faithful in the midst of that time because it doesn't seem to be paying off. Your faithfulness doesn't seem to be producing fruitfulness in your life or in the way that you thought it should be. So the reality is what he's speaking to all of us. He's saying, hey, listen, if Jesus is who he says he is, then he's worth persevering for. He's worth moving ahead no matter how difficult and painful life gets. That's exactly who he's talking this morning. So if that describes you this morning, the good news is God has a word for you here in the book of Hebrews. Now, let me give a disclaimer before we get into the text this morning. Uh, Hebrews is probably the most confusing uh, book in the New Testament. And let me just tell you this. We're walking through this morning probably some of the most confusing and challenging verses in the entire book of Hebrews. So, if you've got your big boy pants on, would you just raise your hand right now? Would you just say that? Acknowledge that. All right, seven of you do, so you seven stay with me, all right? So, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, let's pick up the text here in verse 19, and we'll look down through verse 31 this morning. Verse 19 says, therefore, now anytime there's a therefore in the text, we have to ask a simple question, what's it there for? It's therefore because he's showing, so all the things I taught you in the first section that ends in verse 18, he says the result of all that truth about who Jesus is, this is how you should put that into practice in the midst of persecution, okay? So this is the dividing line, verse 19 in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. All right, so just a recap, he can't help himself, right? He's going to tell you one more time about who Jesus is, okay? He says, here's what you should do. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Verse 26. Four. Scary verses, all right? Four. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will not judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. Now, 
you may not have a seminary degree, you may not consider yourself a Bible scholar, but, but just on a casual reading of the text, there seems to be a clear change of tone between verse 25 and verse 26. Uh, in verse 25, he's like a coach, right? It's in the fourth quarter. They feel like giving up. He's saying, hey, you can do it. You can score one more time. You're, you're good enough. You can just keep pressing on. We're going to win this game, unless you're Michigan or Alabama. Amen. Uh, you just keep going. Sorry. See, keep going. And then in verse 26, it's almost as if he says, because if you don't, you're going to hell. All right? I mean, look at the phrases. In verses 26 through 31, listen to some of these phrases here. Uh, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, a certain fearful expectation of judgment, dying without mercy, insulting the spirit of grace. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord will judge. And if those phrases aren't scary enough, he wraps it up in verse 31 with this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now listen, if you're here and you know someone who's not a Christian but, and you really want them to become a Christian and you just say, I don't care how they get to heaven, I'm willing to scare them into heaven, just read verses 26 through 31, all right? Like those are scary verses. What do they mean? What does it mean for us? Those kinds of things. And then right before those verses, that there's a couple verses that seem out of place. Because he says, hey, keep going, verses 19 through 23. And then if you don't, here's what awaits you, 26 through 31. And by the way, what we think it means is you should also go to church every now and then, verses 24 and 25, right? It's not what it means. We'll get to that here uh, in just a moment. Now, here's the reality. Confusing book, book of Hebrews. Challenging passage uh, right here. Scary verses uh, right here. So here's my goal uh, this morning. I want to take... Uh, some challenging verses in a confusing book, and I want to make it as simple as possible uh, so that you can understand it. You ever, you ever walked out of a message and a person was using words that you can't spell and uh, just, you know, wowing you by the fact they went to seminary, and you walked out and you're not totally sure what they're even talking about, and people walk out and they're like, man, that's really deep, right? Listen, that's not, if people don't understand when they leave, that's not deep, that's dumb, all right? The goal of all the study of a pastor and all the training is to understand the text deeply so that he can explain it simply, so that people can apply it practically, because application is what leads to transformation, all right? So my goal this morning is, in the words of the late J. Vernon McGee, is to put the cookies on the bottom shelf where the kids can get them, all right? This is a challenging book, and these are scary verses, so I'm going to teach to them as practically as I can uh, this morning, all right? So, now, here's what I want you to think of this passage. It's so confusing. It actually breaks apart pretty clean, all right? Uh, Section 1 is uh, verses 19 through 23. Section 2 is verses 24 through 25. Section 3 is verses 26 through 31, all right? That's how this passage breaks apart cleanly. Now, here's what I want you to think. Um, Here's the reality. Uh, What I want you to see, the truth that's being taught here doesn't necessarily unfold in that order. Here's how I want you to think of this passage. Basically, I want you to realize these people are walking through an incredible trial. There's incredible persecution. They're thinking about shrinking back from following Christ. They're thinking about going back to Judaism or the Old Covenant. No one bothered us then. Life was easy. So they're in the midst of incredible persecution. And in this passage, basically what he's saying is this. When you're in the face of incredible persecution, life is hard, it just never seems to get easier, there's trial after trial after trial, you basically have got two roads you can travel. One is you can persevere, verses 19 through 23. 
Or you can denounce the faith and walk away from Jesus altogether, verses 26 through 31. And the fork in the road, the difference between the two is found in verses 24 and verse 25. One option to the left, one option to the right, and the difference between the two is found in verses 24 and verse 25. So that's how I want you to think of this passage as we walk through it this morning, all right? So when you experience, not if, when you experience prolonged pain, prolonged persecution, uh, and even outright uh, just discouragement, you have two options when you feel like giving up and giving in. The first option, so the road on the left is simply this, you can persevere uh, with confidence. You can persevere with confidence. Uh, here's the reality. When, when, when trials come into our way, uh, are we not surprised? Even though the book of James uh, says this in chapter 1, that, that we shouldn't be surprised at all when we fall into various kinds of trials. As a matter of fact, we should expect that. But here's my experience. Even though the Bible says that when a trial actually happened, I'm totally offended, right? Like, oh, God, how could you let that happen? I've been, you know, putting in faithfulness and obedience and all these kind of things, and out came this. How in the world does that even make sense? It offends my sense of justice. It begins to rock my confidence at times, if I'm being honest. Uh, discouragement sets in. Doubt can even creep into my life. And so the reality is simply this, is that when we walk through those times, what happens is uh, our hope begins to decrease. And the longer that a trial goes on, and the more painful it becomes, hope just seems to get squashed or crushed right out of us and it's hard to go forward and persevere when you have very little hope right matter of fact the bible uh, speaks to that proverbs chapter 13 verse 12 says this hope deferred in other words you're waiting you're waiting you're waiting god i'm trying to be faithful i'm trying to be faithful i'm trying to be faithful i'm waiting hope deferred makes the heart sick is what it says in proverbs 13 12 in other words it just weakens you when hope doesn't seem to come now Here's the reality. Uh, one of the things that I want to do is this. I wish that hope would come early in the process. Right? Because if hope came early, like a trial came, and God just, boom, you're full of hope. I'd be like, hey, I'm good. And the trial goes on, and it's prolonged, and it's painful. It's totally fine because my hope tank is full. Because if God would produce hope on the front end as a gift to me, then I would persevere in the midst of that trial no matter how difficult it gets. Here's the problem with that. Now, do we all agree that, that that's what we wish would happen, right? That God would give hope on the front end of the trial. You all agree with that, right? And if you disagree with that, you're lying in church, and the Bible says that's wrong in second hesitations, all right? So... Here's the problem. Some of you wrote that down like, I'm going to look that up later. Second hesitations, right? So, so here's the problem. That's the exact opposite of how God works. Even though I wish he would, even though I would enjoy it more, that's the exact opposite of the way that God works. You say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says this in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Listen to the sequence of how God grows us uh, in hope, all right? And not only that, we, we glory in tribulations, persecution, trials, suffering, Fill in the blank, all the same, right? We glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, what I wish is it was just the opposite, that God would fill me with hope on the front end of a trial, and as a result of that, my character would remain intact, and if my character remains intact and conformed to the image of Christ, I would persevere. God says, no, no, it's the exact opposite. Perseverance produces character. Character, in turn, leads to hope in the midst of a difficult trial, persecution, suffering, whatever the case is. Now, why is that uh, true this morning? Because here's the reality. Because if hope came first, 
If God just allowed a trial to come into your life and God just said, boom, I'm filling your hope tank all the way to the brim. You've got plenty of hope. You know what happened? You and I would never run to Jesus. We wouldn't. Because when I'm full of hope, I don't need him as desperately. When I'm full of hope, I don't cry out to him. But when my hope gets diminished, when perseverance comes first, I, and my hope is low, I have no hope, and perseverance comes and is required of me, guess what? When I'm walking through a trial, I, I'm weakened. And so perseverance becomes difficult when I'm in a weakened state. And so because of that, I have to run and cling to Jesus and say, Lord, I can't do this without you. And any time that we turn to Jesus in the midst of those trials, what happens is He gives us grace upon grace, and that grace allows us to persevere, which produces character, which fills me again with hope. That's exactly how that happens. Now, let's just do a little experiment this morning, all right? And this is, you're going to have to speak out loud here in just a moment. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and I want you to shout out more or less at the end, okay? When you're going through a painful trial or prolonged trial, do you find yourself praying more or less? More. Do you find yourself digging into the Word more or less? Do you find you're more attentive or less when someone is teaching? Yeah, listen, like when I'm hurting, like when I'm struggling and someone opens up their Bible, I'm all ears. Nothing opens our ears bigger than prolonged pain. Like whatever I'm doing doesn't seem to be working. And so when you're opening up the Word, like I'm listening because I need something because I don't have hope. So I need something to keep me persevering in the midst of this. And so the reality is this. The reason that God wires it up that way is because He said, hey, listen, the reason is because it turns you to Jesus. And when that happens, He gives grace upon grace, the Bible says, which allows me to persevere, not in my strength, but in His perfect strength. It's only then that we find His grace is sufficient. My guess is this morning, I could go around the room and say, hey, listen, has there ever been something that God allowed into your life that you certainly didn't pray for and you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy? However, on the other side of it, you've seen how God used it for, for your good and His glory. And apart from that trial, you would have never learned things. Why? Because that trial was so painful and so prolonged that it pushed you to Jesus to cling to Him because you couldn't persevere in your own strength. And as a result of that, God used it for your growth and His glory. That's exactly how it works. It's exactly how it works. And if God just gave hope on the front end, you and I wouldn't run to Jesus. We said, no, no, I'm good. I'm full of hope. My hope's not diminished. I'm totally fine. I'll get through this by myself. And so the reality is this. He says, hey, listen, when you have that, that option to go to Jesus, when you have that and your position, when you understand your position in Christ, then what you can understand is I don't know what's going on. I don't know why it happened, but I know that God can use it and I know that he is faithful. So he's going to sustain me in the midst of this, no matter how long it goes on, no matter how painful it gets. And so our confidence to persevere comes from the fact, not that I'm strong, but that he's faithful. That he's faithful. Look at verses 19 through 20 again. He says, Brother, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. He, here's what he's telling these Hebrew Christians He says, Hey, listen, you're not in this alone. You're not under the law anymore. We just had to grit your teeth and try real hard to obey God. He says, no, no, you've got a high priest who advocates for you. You have direct access to the throne of God. You can enter into God's very presence 
and be transformed by His sustaining grace. So because of that, you can persevere with confidence, not because you're strong, but because He is faithful. That's what he's saying here in this passage. He's reminding them of their position in Christ. Now, so practically speaking, what happens? Like when I understand that truth, what does it position me to live out of? He gives us uh, two things. Let me read through verses 22 and 23. See if you can find the two things here in the text. I'll give you a little clue here, all right? Here's the clue. Lettuce, all right? Write that down, all right? He says, having a high priest of the throne, he says, here's your position in Christ. You can go before the throne, all that kind of stuff. Verse 19, 20, 21. Verse 22, he says, so therefore, as a result of your position in Christ, let us. See what I did there? That's like a joke, but not, not the funny part. All right, so let us. Draw near with a true heart. You say, what's the big deal? Listen to them. That, that was unheard of. Could, could they draw near to God in God's presence under the old covenant? No. Listen, matter of fact, they, they, couldn't even, they couldn't even go to the holy place where the presence of God dwelt. They had to send someone else to draw near to God on their behalf. The high priest would go in there and offer up atonement for the people. And so this idea that, listen, if someone in their culture under that covenant, if someone said, hey, I'm really struggling with persecution, and the person responded and said, you know what? You need strength from God. Go into the Holy of Holies and talk to God. That meant they didn't like you. You know why? Because you were going to be killed. You could just go in there. And so what he's telling me is, hey, listen, you have something here. You can grow, go to the throne of God. You've got direct access to the Father. And in your time of trouble, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, you can go before the throne of grace boldly and obtain mercy and grace in your time of need. And so we have the ability to draw near to God. And here's what James chapter 4, verse 6 says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Now, here's a simple question. Is persevering easier if God is drawing near to me? Yes or no? Of course. And so he says, once you understand all that you have in Christ, let us draw near to the presence of God uh, to sustain us uh, because you now have access to the Father. And then he says the second thing here in verse 23. He says, let us draw near because of our position in Christ. And secondly, in verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, here's the reality. How, how does that work? Is it just try harder? Hang on tighter, just grit your teeth a little while longer, and eventually this trial will go away. Is that how this works? No. We have no confidence in the flesh. He gives the answer in the second part of verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Not because we're strong, but because he who promised is faithful. In other words, I, I don't know why it's here. I don't know why it's gone on so long. I don't know how much worse it's going to get. But here's what I know, that Christ is faithful. And I can draw near to Him, and His grace will sustain me. And I don't have to hang on because He's faithful to sustain me. And I don't understand how it's turning out. But here's what I know. God will use this to grow me, and God will use this for His glory, not because I'm strong, but because He is faithful. And so when we come to those places where there's a fork in the road and life is incredibly difficult, we can have full confidence and say, hey, listen, he who begun a good work in you will complete it at the day of redemption, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And so the reality is this. You and I have an access to the Father that they never had. And that 
that access sustains us no matter how difficult life gets. Here's the thing. When our life gets hard, we don't have to sit back and wonder, God, are you there? Are you present? Are you, are you, are you, are you concerned? Those kind of things. No, no. The Bible says I can go directly to the throne of God. Now, if that's good news, on the count of three, would you shout hallelujah? One, two, three. Hallelujah. All right. Pentecostal. If someone was late on that, God bless you for that, all right? Life is hard. Option number one, I can persevere with confidence. Why? Because he is faithful. Or I can denounce my faith altogether. And I, I could tell you stories of people who were walking with the Lord and life got difficult and God didn't show up in the way they thought he'd show up or as soon as they thought he'd show up. And they just said, you know what, I'm tired of this. Uh, I used to profess this. It, it didn't work for me. And so now I'm just walking away from Christianity altogether. That's the second option. You can denounce your faith. Now, let me tell you how to interpret this passage in uh, verses 26 through 31. Uh, let me tell you how not to interpret it. Don't, don't just cherry pick uh, these verses out. And so someone says, hey, I think these people lost their salvation. I think these people were saved and, and they turned their back and they fell from grace. And, and the reason I think that's possible is because of these verses, all right? So here's the key to understanding these verses is in the context of Scripture, all right? And so the reality is the book of Hebrews is a comparison between the old covenant of the law and the new covenant that Jesus offered through grace, all right? So with that backdrop in mind, we're going to walk through probably the most challenging and scary verses maybe in the entire New Testament, all right? So basically he makes three statements in six verses here uh, in this passage. Statement number one is in verse 26 and 27. Statement number two is in verse 28 and 29. Statement number three is in verses 30 and 31. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to walk you through these verses backwards, okay? Here's why. Because it's easier and it gets more difficult and more difficult once you go through it backwards. So we'll save the hardest verse for last, okay? So here's what we're going to do. Statement number one, or statement number three, is found in verses 30 and 31. So let's read those together. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. Basically, th these verses are not hard to understand. What he's saying in verses 30 and 31 is simply this, is that God is a God of justice. Yes, God is a God of mercy. Yes, God is a God of love. But also, God is, God is a God of holiness, and God is a God of justice, and God is a just judge is what he's saying there in verses 30 and 31. He's simply reminding us the role that God plays as a just judge. Okay, that, that's not hard to understand. Now, the second grouping here, what he's saying is, hey, the justice of God or God's the judge? Then basically, uh, when it was the law, here's how God judged, verse 28. So how much more severe should God judge when it's the new covenant, verse 29? All right, look at verses 28 and 29. So verse 28, anyone who's rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So under the law, basically if someone was caught violating the law with a, in a way that the, uh, the penalty was death, if two or three people said, hey, I saw that, it totally happened, that was a just response by God. Okay? So then in verse 29, here's what he says, and I'm going to read this in a different translation. It's a little easier to understand. Here's what he says in verse 29. Just think how much worse the punishment in comparison to the law in verse 28. 
will be for those who've trampled on the Son of God and who've treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy on us. So here's what he's saying. Verse 30 31, God's a just, just God. And he's so just that when, when someone violated the law, here was the response. And God was just in that, verse 28. So how much more severe will God judge those who don't violate the law, but who violate the gift of grace in this new covenant through Jesus? Verse 29, okay? Not super hard to understand, a little tricky. Here's where it gets tough. Verses 26 and verse 27. Let's read them together. Verse 26 says this. For if we sin willfully after... We have received the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. In other words, what he's saying is you're up a creek and you've got no paddle. But, here's what you should expect. A certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Now, verse 27 is not that hard. He says basically, hey, listen, if you violate verse 26... Verse 27 is what will happen. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, what does that mean? Judgment, fiery indignation. Listen, I looked it up in the Greek, and here's what that means. Not good, all right? That's what he's saying. He's saying you're on the wrong side of God's wrath. That's what he's saying. Now, listen, I don't know about you. I don't want to be on the wrong side of God's anything, let alone his wrath. And so how do I avoid that in verse 27? You don't do what verse 26 says you shouldn't do. So, what does verse 26 say? This is the most challenging verse in this entire uh, section. This is where context is crucial. Now, is the entire book of Hebrews written to Christians who had received the knowledge of this new covenant of grace, but were considering turning their back and going back to the old covenant under Judaism? Absolutely, that's the context. The whole book of Hebrews, that is the context. And has he told them multiple times in the book of Hebrews, hey, listen, if you do that... If you turn back and denounce this new covenant in Jesus, you'll prove that your faith was intellectual only. In other words, you'll agree, hey, listen, the gospel is true, but we don't hold it as treasure. He's told him that over and over and over again. That is the context of this verse in the book of Hebrews. All right? And so what he's saying here is this. He's saying, hey, listen, anyone who has knowledge of what's offered and available in Jesus and considers that for a while. However, life gets hard, and they walk away because it didn't turn out how they thought it should turn out, and they walk away and denounce the faith. Here's what he's saying. There is no forgiveness for you. There is no atonement. You cannot offer any sacrifice. There is nothing available for that person. This is not a person who had salvation and lost it. This is a person who explored it, professed it, life got hard, it didn't work out, they weren't satisfied with God, they would have done things totally different, and they said, you know what, enough of that, I'm walking away. And he says, when you do that, there is no forgiveness available for that person. This is an apostate. This is not a person who was ignorant of the truth. Were they, were they made aware of the new covenant? Absolutely. They were not ignorant they were people who knew, who had, who had understood it, who, who professed it. And he said, if you turn back after knowing all of that, he says, there's no forgiveness for you because you give evidence your faith was only intellectual. Now, let's dig in this for just a little bit. We're almost done, right? Go back to verse 26 again. Verse 26 says this, For if we sin willfully after we've received 
the truth, knowledge of the truth. The truth here is the truth of the gospel. Okay? Now, did these people receive the gospel and then walk away? How is that possible? How is that not saying they lost their salvation? It doesn't say that. What does the text say? The text says this. We've received knowledge of the truth. didn't say they received the truth. It said you've received knowledge of the truth. In other words, you're not ignorant. You're not that person out in the jungle who goes, oh, I never heard of Jesus. No, no, he said, no, no, you've had this thing fully explained to you. And even after you knew that, you still walked away because it got hard. So these are people who are not ignorant. What does it mean by willfully sinned? Willfully sinned here in the original language, it has the idea of deliberate, habitual patterns of disobedience. This is not a season of struggling. This is a person who said, hey, listen, I walked with Jesus or I professed to walk with Jesus. Life didn't turn out how I thought. And if that's how God operates, I'm totally, I'm walking away. I'm done with that. And that's their life pattern after that. He says, you never had salvation. You didn't lose salvation. You never had it. As evidenced by this pattern of willful disobedience in your life. Now, told at the beginning, difficult trial, persecution, whatever the case is, you're walking down the road of persecution, suffering, whatever that is. And you've got two options. You can turn left and you can persevere with confidence, not because you're strong, but because he's faithful. And because you can run to him and he'll unleash his grace in your life to sustain you. Or, option two, I can take the fork in the road and I can go right and I can say, you know what? I didn't sign up for this. I've been faithful and God has not been faithful. I'm choosing to walk away from all of it. That's apostasy. Here's the deal. In the middle, this is so important, in the middle is often the difference between the two when you're battling unbelief. All right? So how many of you, let's do a little survey this morning. How many of you, so, so here's, we'll have to make a statement first. Right? The statement's going to be a little startling at first. So, so the fork in the road is, is this last principle. Here, the fork in the road is this. Here's what I want to say. Going to church can keep you from going to hell. And so in light of that truth, let's close with a word of prayer. I'm totally kidding. I'm kidding. It's like, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't say that. And then, right? Why would you, why would you even say that? Right? Now, some of you, you're old school. You're thinking, amen, I'm glad someone said it. Amen, I've been telling my kids for years. They're getting church. So let's just do a little research this morning. How many of you grew up, if you grew up in church, I didn't grow up in church, but if you grew up in church, how many of you heard at some point, you didn't even know where it was at in the Bible, but at some point someone taught that you should go to church every Sunday because you should not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. How many of you have ever heard that taught? Yeah, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set you free this morning, all right? That's not what that means. That's what you think it means. What the reality, now it, that isn't about, that's what he's saying here in verse 24 and 25. So if you're like, you know what, why should we go to church? And your kid's like, I don't want to go to church. I don't I want to sleep in. Why should we go to church? Because we're not going to forsake the assembling of ourselves. Is. Where's that in the Bible? I don't know, but it says it somewhere, right? This is where it says it, right here. But it doesn't mean what you think it means. And how many of you are told you should, you know, so let's just read, okay, verse 24 and 25. Here's what it says. He says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Here it is. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, 
but exhorting one another, encouraging, so much more as you see the day approaching. Now, here, here's how often this was taught. You should go to church every single Sunday, and here's why. It's because you shouldn't forsake the assembling of yourselves. Matter of fact, just the opposite. You should be encouraging so, uh, each other uh, so much more when you see the day approaching, and the day was considered to be Sunday. The day is not Sunday in this passage. The day is the day of judgment. Okay? And so what is he saying here? What, what, is, what in the world is he talking? He's not talking about church attendance. Like, like some of you have, like the reason you, just the whole, that's what you've taught. Like, we didn't go to church, we don't forsake, we shouldn't forsake this of ourselves and, and those kinds of things. And so uh, what exactly is he talking about here in this passage? And what the world does going to church have to do with the two forks in the road, persevering or walking away? What does it have to do? Here's what it means. I want you to read through this again, and I want you to ask a simple question. Is he contrasting attendance at church and non-attendance at church? If that's what that means. It doesn't, but let's just read through it, okay? So here's what he says. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, okay? That's non-attendance. Some people were not coming. They were not participating. They, they weren't involved in the life of the church. They weren't even showing up, all right? But... We should be exhorting one another, and so much more, as you see the day uh, approaching. What does it say in verse 24? Let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. Listen, here's what this means here in the middle. What he's saying is this. He's not contrasting not attending with attending. That's why we should attend church. What he's contrasting is not attending with those who are participating and engaged in the life of the local church. Listen, when he says stir one another up to love and good works, is that engagement or attendance? That's engagement. When he says exhorting or encouraging one another, so much more as you see the day of judgment approaching, is that attendance or engagement? That's engagement. And so the reason that he has this here, the reason it's the fork in the road, is what he's saying is this, when life gets hard, when trials are painful and prolonged and you're at a fork in the road and the option left is to persevere because of his faithfulness or it's to walk away and to throw in the towel and walk away from Jesus, the difference between the two is not showing up at church. It's the body of Christ engaging with one another, stirring each other up to love and good works, exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day of judgment approaching. Here's what this means. That God's plan and God's gift to you to keep you believing when you're battling unbelief is the body of Christ and the people around you. This is not about attending church. What he's saying is when you're in the midst of a prolonged trial like they were, you will battle seasons of unbelief. And the difference between persevering and walking away in these two passages is verse 24 and 25. And it's not about showing up. It's about participating and engaging and living in this body life that we call the family, the body of Christ. This is not about church attendance. Yes, that should happen when you attend church, but the end game is not people showed up. A few weeks ago, we had a little over a thousand people in attendance. Week after that, we had a little under a thousand people. You know what that means? Like, like you know, listen, not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. 
Listen, there are lots of people watching the Browns play today. God's not pleased with that. Amen? No, he says the difference, the thing that keeps you believing when you're battling unbelief because life is hard is not showing up. It's being engaged. That's the contrast he paints here. Some forsake the assembling of themselves. They don't show up. But others, not only do they show up, they exhort one another. They stir one another up to love and good works. And it's that exhortation that keeps you believing when you're battling unbelief because life is hard. You know why I know that's true? Because in their context, in the early church, they had no context for a person who attended but did not engage. You were all in. If you study Christianity in other parts of the world, it's all in. The only place where it's, hey, just show up if you can, um, is in America. And so here's a gentle warning for you this morning. You're not smart enough or strong enough to battle unbelief by yourself when life is hard. But the good news is that God already knew that. And so God put people around you called the body of Christ to pick you up when you feel like giving up. And so the people sitting around you this morning, as weird as you think they are, and listen, some of you are. They are gifts from God to help you to keep belief when you feel like giving up and walking away. And my guess is, I don't know what you're walking through this morning, but there's a good chance that there's someone in the room in this family who's on the other side of that struggle that you're currently in, and they'd love to walk with you if you just let them.